I want to encourage you to open up your Bible, the Bible you brought with you, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible there in the pew that you're welcome to keep, by the way, if you don't have one, but open up whatever Bible you have, electronic or otherwise, to the book of Philemon. And if you're not careful, as I've told you before, this, this book is so short, you could pass by it quickly without even noticing it, right there between Hebrews and Titus. And the story, as you're finding it, it's on page 837 in the Pew Bible. The story behind this one-chapter book is that it is, in fact, a letter. A letter that the Apostle Paul has written to Onesimus, a runaway slave, a slave who's run away from his owner, Philemon. So those are the three main people involved in this letter. Onesimus, however, has come to faith in Christ. In meeting Paul by God's providence, he's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, in fact, he's currently helping Paul in his work to share the gospel with other people. But in the midst of all this, Paul seeks for Onesimus to be reconciled to his owner Philemon, who, by the way, is also a follower of Jesus, thanks to the Apostle Paul. This book, therefore, as you have it open, is a letter that Paul sends with Onesimus asking Philemon to receive, forgive, and restore him back into the family. So with that introduction... I invite you to start reading with me from Philemon. Listen to this, starting in verse 4. Paul writes, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention me, to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been in Philemon now three weeks, and we've got one more week to go. And what we've done is we've, see, we've, we've been trying to look at this letter from the perspective of the di- different people involved in this letter. So in the beginning, we looked at the perspective of Onesimus, the runaway slave. And then last week, we looked at the perspective of Philemon, who we might call the offended party. And there's different insights depending upon whose perspective you're looking at this letter through. And today we're going to look at it through the perspective of Paul. And Paul, as the writer of this letter, offers us a unique window into a topic that we all 
are aware of, but that we all don't like to talk about. And that topic is conflict. We all have it in our relationships and in our lives, conflict. And yet most of us tend to avoid it. It makes us so uncomfortable when there's conflict between us and someone else or just conflict in our community that when it happens, we tend to ignore it if we can. What about you? What do you do? What, when you see two people you know at odds with each other, what is your first reaction? Is your first reaction to take sides? Is your first reaction to carry the mantle for one while condemning the other? Or is your first reaction to stay out of it? To figure it's none of your business and they just have to work it out? Or is your first reaction when two people that you know are at odds with each other and you don't have to admit it, but is your first reaction to fall victim to the temptation to gossip? Maybe perhaps make the rift between them even deeper? Is for any, or for any of us, is our first reaction when two people we know at odds, for each other, at odds with each other, is our first reaction ever to think about helping them to reconcile? Because the thing this morning that I want to say to you is that if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be our first impulse. If two people we know are at odds with each other, as a follower of Jesus, our first impulse should be to help them reconcile. Because if the gospel is God our Father in Jesus has made peace with us, if that's the gospel we believe, that's why we're here, that God the Father in Christ has made peace with us, then we, as children of our Father, as imitators of God, must become peacemakers. In fact, as I briefly mentioned last week leading into this sermon, the Bible specifically declares, Paul writes in another letter, that our work as followers of Christ, as ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the kingdom, our primary work is to be ministers of reconciliation. That's our calling, our shared calling. We are ambassadors for Christ engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. And what I think is fantastic for us today is that there is no more hands-on guide to what the ministry of reconciliation looks like in practice than through this deeply personal letter that Paul writes to bring two people who are divided against each other back together into relationship. And so we are going to look at this ministry of reconciliation we're called to through the perspective of Paul. But what I want to say really quickly before we start, because I don't think we might, we might not normally go there or naturally go there, is we need to understand as we look at this letter that what Paul teaches us through this letter isn't just about what he writes to Philemon. What I mean is, while we have Paul's words to Philemon, there was also a conversation that he had with Onesimus. And while we don't have a recording of that conversation, we know Paul had to sit down and talk with Onesimus too. And more than likely, if you can imagine it in your mind, just knowing the brief circumstances I gave you, the setup for this letter, more than likely, Onesimus wasn't that eager or motivated to go back home, right? I mean, after all, he ran away for a reason. Added to this, his new life in Christ, since meeting Paul, is different, probably better than the one he knew before working for Philemon. So going back means facing the consequences of his actions. Going back is risky. Besides any consideration of any punishment for what he's done, Onesimus, at a bare minimum, risks he could be looking at resuming his former duties as a servant in Philemon's household. So Paul probably had to appeal to Onesimus like he is now to Philemon. 
So remember that what we're, that we're gleaning from Paul here probably works both ways, though we don't have the other conversation. So how does Paul begin? How does Paul begin the work of reconciliation? And how can we learn what, how we begin when we have two people estranged in our lives to begin the ministry of reconciliation? What we notice from what we read is that the first step in moving someone toward reconciliation is to start with encouragement. It's to start with encouragement. It's to build them up. Paul doesn't come right out of the gate in this letter and tell Philemon what he ought to do. But he explicitly says, I could tell you what you ought to do, but he doesn't start there. Paul begins, and I hope you have your Bible open, and if you don't, open it up so you can see this. Paul begins by building up Philemon. Paul expresses his gratitude toward Philemon. Paul reinforces his love for Philemon. Paul, through prayer in the opening verses of this letter, seeks to bless Philemon. Paul expresses his thanks and his love toward Philemon. Pretty basic, right? Nothing earth-shattering here. But let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves, are we thankful? Are we thankful to God for those around us? Are we thankful to God for those around us? I'm seeing a couple of people nod. This is your part. Yes, you can nod or you can shake your head the other way. Do something. Are we thankful to God for the people in our lives? Yes. I would nod my head too. And yet, even though the, we would expect that we would nod our heads, don't we tend to take this for granted? Don't we tend to take this as obvious? I mean, don't we in our minds go, well, you know, yeah, people, everybody knows I'm, people in my life would matter. They know I'm thankful for them. Yes, you know I love you. You know it. We, we take it as obvious. We take it for granted. So the question again is, are we thankful and we say yes, but what the witness of Paul is here that's so easy for us to miss because it's so simple yet so important is Paul's witness is that he expresses his thanksgiving, that love towards Philemon. He expresses it. My friends, do we express our thanks to God, our love for the different people in our lives? Do we express it to our friends, our spouse, our children, our parents, this church family? Paul prays for Philemon. He seeks blessing for him. If you have that Bible open, you notice that. And what's key is he seeks blessing for Philemon out of his thanksgiving and love for Philemon. Do you pray? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray for your family? Do you pray for your community? Do you pray for them not only out of a need or a request? Do you pray for them out of thanksgiving and love for them? That's different. Do you pray for them out of thanksgiving and love for them? Parents, are we praying for our children? Not that they'll get it together, not that they'll realize we're right and they're wrong, not that they'll finally move out of our house. Are we praying for our children out of thanksgiving and love for them? Children, are you praying for your parents? Not just because they let you live in their house, not just because they provide a meal when you come over or let you do your laundry or all the other things. Are you praying for your parents out of thanksgiving and love for them just for who they are? And again, many of us that were nodding our heads, this is easy for us to maybe to affirm, but the proof that we're doing it is evidence in what we do. And what I'm, my, what I'm getting at is Paul, notice this, actually tells Philemon he is thankful for him. He actually tells Philemon he loves him. He tells Philemon he prays for him. Are you communicating your gratitude, your love, your blessing toward others? 
How often do we tell our friends that we're thankful to the Lord for them? How often do we communicate our love toward our children, sharing how thankful to God we are to have the privilege of sharing house and home with them? When's the last time, kids, you told your mom or your dad that you pray for them, that you love them out of a desire for them to be blessed? When's the last time you ever told anyone in this church family how grateful you are to God for them? But let's take this building up principle up another notch. Because if you have that Bible open, something that's, that blows me, blows me away is we notice Paul shares his thanksgiving, his love, his prayers for Philemon publicly. Publicly. Now you might go, wait a second, this is a letter that's written from Paul to Philemon, and you're right. It is a, re- a letter that Paul explicitly writes to Philemon, and the very first verse of this letter, which we didn't read, tells us that. But if you go, if you have that Bible open, the second verse tells us that while this letter is specifically for Philemon, Paul writes it beyond Philemon. Paul specifically says, this is for the entire church body gathered in your home, Philemon. They, can, they get to hear this letter too. So what I'm pointing out is what Paul expresses to Philemon isn't meant to be a private communication. It's a word given for all of the community that Philemon's a part of to hear. So let's take it up a notch. Are we declaring our gratitude our love, our blessing of others publicly. These are aspects of our relationship with each other that should be communicated for all to see and hear. And isn't it interesting that our default tends to be publicly? We don't intend this, but this is what what tends to come out publicly is we communicate our disappointment. We communicate our frustration. We communicate our embarrassment. But it takes mindfulness to publicly communicate our thanksgiving, our love, our desire for blessing for other people. As a son, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, I confess to you that I need to focus more not only on expressing these things to the people in my life, but doing so in the presence of other people. I'm preaching to myself this morning as much as I'm preaching to you. As your pastor, I need to be more actively communicating these things to you. It's a way, it's a part of my calling of building you up in the faith. And so if I could hit pause for just a second, I want to say something that, and this is why we do it. We, it's up here, I'm saying it in my head all the time, so I assume that it's obvious. But that's the point, it's not obvious. It shouldn't just be obvious in our head, it should be obvious in our words. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, I love you. I love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to say publicly that I'm thankful to God for you, for each and every one of you. And I'm thankful to God for for you even when some of you annoy me. (laughs) I'm thankful to God for you even when some of you disagree with me. I'm thankful to God for you even when I annoy you and you disagree with me. I'm thankful that we get to be in relationship together, that Christ is what holds us together. And I want you to know that I pray for all of you I don't always, I'm not always great at names. Sometimes I fumble a name. You've maybe been on the other side of that and I apologize. But I go through that directory that we're updating and I pray for each and every one of you. And I don't just pray, God, please tell them to stop talking. Or God, please convince them that I'm right. Or God, please, can they just get over what is I don't pray that way for you. Well, sometimes I pray that way for you. (laughs) I pray through every name, for every one of you, simply that you would be richly blessed. 
richly blessed in the knowledge and the power of God's grace that's at work in your life. My friends, building others up, being an encourager, this is a constant theme in Paul's life. If you were to survey Paul's letters, and if you've never done this, I invite you to do this before. Just even look at the beginning, because it's always at the beginning. If you survey Paul's letters, you're going to find the vast majority of them begin with Paul expressing his love and thanksgiving to God for those to whom he is writing. Even more than this, and this is very important as well, if you were to do that survey, if you were to look carefully at the way Paul offers encouragement, builds others up, one thing you'll notice is Paul doesn't have a merely formulaic, superficial, or generic way that he begins all his letters. Paul doesn't use the exact same words in his letters because no, he expresses his gratitude, he expresses his affection, his prayers for others in a personal way. If you've got Philemon but let's just look at that. Paul specifically talks about how Philemon has impacted his life. He calls Philemon his brother and stresses how encouraged he personally is by Philemon's affection towards others. Paul details what and how Philemon contributes to the work of the kingdom, that Philemon refreshes the hearts of God's people. Paul bases his appeal that he's about to make to Philemon on the basis of something of specific character trait in Philemon. He explicitly points to Philemon's devotion and faith. He builds him up. Beloved, we, you and I, we are all in Christ construction projects in project, in process. We are all construction projects in progress. The foundation of the cross and the resurrection has been laid. The framework of the gospel, if you will, is in place. And as temples of the Holy Spirit, we are beginning to take shape. But our Father's work to complete each of us is done through our mutual encouragement of each other. We, you and I, we tack on the insulation. We apply the paint. We put up the trim. We build each other up through our words of encouragement and support. And hear this, building up another person isn't about telling someone how good they are. It isn't about telling someone how good they are. That's what we often hear out there. But we don't need people building up our self-esteem. We don't have a problem with self-esteem. In fact, if anything, we've got too much self-esteem. Because when we build up each other's self-esteem, all we're doing is we're turning our attention upon ourselves and away from our true foundation, the real source of our identity and our confidence, which is Jesus. So building up another person isn't about telling someone how good they are. It's about telling someone how good God is at work in them. Building up another person is about sharing with someone how we see Christ revealing himself through their lives. Do you remember two weeks ago when I asked you to do this for another person? That's building someone up. Building someone up is about helping others to see how God is working in and through them. It's about looking for the fruit of the Spirit in another person and calling attention to it with gratitude and praise, being specific about it. It's about noticing the gifts of the Spirit in another person and lovingly affirming how God is being magnified through such treasures. It's about recognizing the emergence of the kingdom of God in the world of someone else and praying for the blessing of the continued dominion of the Lord's reign in their life. And so I ask you again, when's the last time you communicated that publicly to the people in your life? It's about being specific. 
It's about being personal. It's about pointing to Christ and his kingdom at work in another person's life. Because when we purposefully notice, when we intentionally communicate such things to others before others publicly, we build them up. But we can't do this work. We can't, we can't just express such things in the moment, out of the blue. We can't seek to suddenly build each other up when the crisis or the conflict comes. Please hear this. To be able to see such things, to be specific, to get personal, to be able to call it out means we have to be sharing life with people before the work of reconciliation needs to get done. Do you hear that, church? We're not emergency response team that suddenly shows up when two people are at odds with each other and suddenly we want to try to build them up. Because when you do that, when you try to build someone up without being in relationship with that person, all you're indulging in is idle and empty flattery. You're puffing up. You're not building up. Because you can't get specific. You can't be personal when you don't know someone else. When you don't understand them. When you don't share life with them. You need to know the house in order to truly know the house, the work the house needs. Paul had a prior relationship with Philemon. He knew his character. They shared life together. And as a result, Paul was able to truly encourage him and build him up. And you see, it's out of that first gesture of affirmation and support that Paul was able to take it to the next level, the next step of the ministry of reconciliation. You see, once people know we are with them, and please hear that, once people know we understand them, once people know we care more about them than we do the issue at hand, we can do the next step of reconciliation. And that next step is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Paul tells Philemon the truth. But interesting, if you have that Bible open, the truth that Paul shares with Philemon here is not the truth we are usually trying to tell. What do I mean by that? Paul tells Philemon the truth, but it's not the truth that we usually try to tell. This is because for you and I, we think truth-telling is telling another person, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm telling you the truth right now. I'm right and you're wrong. But biblically, and this is fascinating, the truth is not about the, uh, telling the other person they're wrong and we are right. What Paul models for us here, and I really would encourage you to pay attention to this, that biblically, the truth is the frank and honest revelation of how God is working. The truth is the frank and honest revelation of how God is working. It's narrowing past our disagreements into what God is doing in the midst of our lives while we're fighting. While we're fighting. This is how Jesus worked. You notice Jesus never got into picking sides. He was just always pointing to the kingdom. He was always pointing to this is what God is doing. This, the kingdom is here. And this is what Paul does. Paul doesn't get caught up in Onesimus or Philemon. Paul, the truth that Paul speaks is the truth of what God is doing in the midst of their dispute with each other. And what does Paul share? He shares with Philemon that God has changed Onesimus. The Lord has transformed your relationship with each other. Onesimus is useful, but not in the way you once understood that word. Onesimus represents you, but not in the way you used to understand your relationship. His service represents your service. Onesimus is dear to you, but no longer is a piece of property. You are no longer just master and servant. God has made you brothers in Christ. Beloved, we need to stop confusing telling someone the truth with telling someone how 
they are wrong and we are right. Because telling the truth as a means to peace is not about winning an argument or proving a point. Telling the truth is pointing to the reality, the example, the witness of Christ in the midst of our disagreement. It's not about what would Jesus do as much as what is Jesus already doing. It's about looking for where in the midst of our stalemate, we see forgiveness breaking through. We see love rising forth, challenging the status quo that we have, challenging the rules of the game that we're playing by. For Paul, you go outside this letter, Paul in the midst of disputes in the early church saw what Christ was doing and he didn't necessarily get involved, but he said, look, look at what God is doing, therefore circumcision no longer matters. Look at what God is doing, therefore eating meat sacrificed to idols is not a concern anymore. Look at what God is doing, therefore we should stop separating Jews and Gentiles from each other. And church, we can look at what God is doing in our day and age, and I'm going to say, without trying to take sides... Look at what God is doing, and you know what? We've been at this for several hundred years. Mode of baptism doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're sprinkled or if you're dunked. We need to stop fighting about it. I'm going to say to you right now, being baptized before you receive communion isn't a concern anymore. Separating Catholics and Lutherans isn't a concern anymore. Or Presbyterians and Pentecostals. Look at what God is doing in the midst of his church. You have in your life a couple that's at odds with each other. You have in your life a child that's estranged from their parent. Telling the truth in the midst of that conflict is not picking sides. It's not telling one person you're right and they're wrong or they're wrong and you're right. Telling the truth is pointing to where God is at work even in the midst of their disagreement. Where in the midst of where they are, they are doubling down on their, what their disagreement is about and saying what God is doing, the love you have together as a couple, the love you have together as family is far more important. It is far more substantive than what divides you. That is telling the truth in love. This is a timely sermon. I, you know, I, this is one of those examples where I, ahead of time, this is what I was going to preach on. Did I know that we were going to be witnessing what we're witnessing in Baltimore, preaching this sermon? And it's, this is not coming out of nowhere. This has been going on for us for a while. But telling the truth? How do we tell the truth in the midst of what we see? How do we point to what God is doing? It's my best effort and prayer, but maybe in places like Baltimore, the truth isn't whether most cops are bad or whether most arrests involve black citizens. Maybe in places like Baltimore, the truth is Jesus died to put an end to hate, discrimination, and violence. The truth is Jesus died to put an end to hate, discrimination, and violence, whether it's done in the name of the law or whether it's done in protest against the law. Maybe the truth is that rather than hiding behind a badge or starting a fire with a thrown bottle, maybe the truth is the Spirit of God is moving among citizens, not just in Baltimore, but in every city in this nation. The truth is the Spirit of God is moving among citizens, willing to stand together in the name of justice and life for persons of all colors and all classes. Beloved, are we speaking the truth to each other, pointing to how God is calling, what the Lord is doing in our midst? Or are we just pointing our fingers at each other in blame and accusation? Reconciliation is about speaking the truth, but that truth must be spoken in love. Paul tells Philemon the truth, but he refuses. Do you catch this? He refuses to force the truth upon Philemon. 
Instead, Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of love. If you have that Bible, Paul acknowledges his authority over Philemon. He gives us that brief moment where he says, okay, I get it. Onesimus owes you, Philemon, but let's put it out there. You owe me. But Paul refuses to appeal to his rights over and against Philemon. Instead, he appeals to this principle of mutuality, mutual respect and service. Okay, Onesimus owes you, you owe me, but here's how it is, Paul says, as a minister of reconciliation. All three of us owe everything to Jesus, so let's put our rights aside. Let's put our rights aside. Philemon, I am asking you to forgive and forgo punishment. Onesimus, I am asking you to return voluntarily with no guarantees. And I, Paul, am being asked to get between you two without pulling rank. Speaking the truth in love, beloved, is counseling another person but not commanding them. Because you see, love recognizes and allows for choice. Love recognizes and allows for choice because the truth is we can only change ourselves and that only by God's grace. Many of us have heard this, but some of us need to hear this again and again and again. We cannot change or control others. You cannot change or control others. Parents to children, children to parents, friends to friends, spouses to spouses. You cannot change or control others. You can mess people up but you will not change or control them. In fact, violating the choice of another person is not loving. It's manipulative and abusive. To force the truth upon someone contradicts the very nature of the gospel. Jesus calls us. He invites us into relationship with him, but Jesus does not force himself upon us. The choice to believe, the choice to follow him is ours. Speaking the truth in love is giving the other person the grace to make the right decision on their own. And, and, and I, what I just said there, I know that sits out there. I have relationships too. I'm, I'm not immune to this. I'm not apart from this. There are no guarantees. That's what makes this scary. There are no guarantees. But speaking the truth in love is trusting the Holy Spirit to lead the other person to the right decision eventually. And that's the word we don't want there. We want now. Speaking the truth in love is trusting the Holy Spirit to lead the other person to the right decision eventually. Are you trying to change others? You look at your life, your your relationships. Are you trying to force someone's hand? Are you trying to make up their mind for them in an effort towards making peace? It's very tempting. (laughs) It's very tempting. It's very easy to cram the truth down someone else's throat to give them a good, good dose of truth. Some of us are really good at that. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just keeping it real. And in our zeal for God, in our zeal for the other person, and I mean this, with the best of intentions, we can lose our sense of balance. Saying and doing things in anger and frustration we later regret. And that's because speaking the truth in love is about being tactful. And tact is about timing. Tact is waiting for the right moment to speak your mind. And some of us in this room don't wait. If we think it, we say it. If it's true, we just call it out. And it's true, therefore, what do you got to say? You may be speaking truth, but if you're not speaking that truth in love, then you are speaking falsely. You are speaking falsely. 
That's not my, this isn't Pastor Chris's word. This is the word of God. Tact is about timing. Tact is waiting till the right moment to speak your mind. For when the other person is ready to hear, to receive the truth. Tact is the ability to say the right thing at the right time in the right way. The right thing at the right time in the right way. Well, you may say, well, how do I know if the other person is ready? How do I know when the time is right? Pray. I just want to encourage you as a general rule, pray before you say anything. Pray. Start praying. And as you pray, observe. Observe. Listen to them. This gets back to where we started. Listen to them and listen to God. Pay attention to what God is doing in their life. If you're estranged from someone else, parents with your children or a friend, and you get together once a month for dinner, and all of a sudden when you get together once a month, you're pouring out your truth, and you're not sharing life with them, you're doing more harm than good. you got to deal with the messy stuff of waiting and getting involved in their life. Pay attention to what God is doing in their life, and then you wait and you see. We ask the Lord to prompt us when it's time. We ask the Lord to prompt us when it's his time, not our time. Oh, well, I, I felt it. I'm going for it. Was that your timing or was that God's timing? And when in doubt, and if you wrote nothing else down today, write this down. When in doubt, if the Lord is prompting you, if you have the sliver, sinus, tiniest sliver of doubt, wait. Wait some more. God is never in a hurry. Do you notice that? God is never in a hurry. So maybe we shouldn't be either. When the time comes, the Lord's timing, all we say to the other person is what needs to be said in the quickest, kindest, and most direct way possible. We speak the truth in love. Last part here, but we don't just move on after that. We don't just move on after that. The ministry of reconciliation is not just about building a person up and then speaking the truth in love. Reconciliation involves one final crucial step. Reconciliation involves personal investment. Investing yourself in the restoration of both persons. Do you notice here that Paul links his identity and his mission with Onesimus and Philemon? He says, we are partners. We are brothers we are one and the same. Look to each other, treat each other as you would treat me. See, for many of us, if we get, get into this work of reconciliation, we get the building up part, we maybe get to the speak the truth and love, and then we go. But do you realize how damaging that is? I built you up, I gave you some truth in love, good luck. Good luck. The hardest work, the most important work, is the work of restoration that comes next and investing yourself in it. And we don't like, we don't, this scares us because it's true. Reconciliation is fragile work. It falls apart easily. People are sensitive. Relationships are touchy. Just speaking the truth, though, in someone's life, even if it's done in love, and then leaving the scene is not sticking around for the final step. Hit and run accountability, hit and run accountability hurts rather than heals. What we need is not distance from someone, but solidarity between two people. Sometimes two people who are estranged to each other, they need someone in the middle to hold on to to get back together. The other way I'll say this is that if we enter into the work of reconciliation, if we want two people to work something out, 
Our interest level to a solution is demonstrated by the commitment of our own resources, by putting ourselves on the line. You read this, Paul doesn't just metaphorically link arms with Onesimus and Philemon and say, okay, guys, kiss and make up and let me know how it goes. He commits his own reputation and resources to the well-being of their relationship. Did you see it? Paul offers and commits to covering all the losses incurred by, to Philemon. Paul stakes his own credibility on Onesimus' reliability and effectiveness. He will not run away again. You can trust him. He's my son. And what I love most is that Paul frames his contribution to the restoration project that is Philemon, Philemon and Onesimus with great expectation of a positive outcome. What I mean is Paul doesn't say, okay, you know what? I'm taking a big risk putting my money and my character on the line for the, you two yokels. You guys better come through with this or you're going to pay me back. Do you notice? No. Paul instead participates what he's doing anticipates his participation as an investment in both of them. He anticipates their growth. He literally says, Onesimus will be even dearer, more useful to you as a partner than he was to me. Philemon, I know I will benefit. I know my heart will be refreshed. You will do even more than I ask. Are we willing? If you've been with me, I might lose you here. Are we willing to put our money where our mouth is? our time and our energy into the people we're trying to help reconcile? Do you have two people in your life who are estranged from each other, who are estranged over some kind of financial issue? If there's an outstanding debt between two people in your life, are you willing to pay for that debt, to write the check, to move that out of the way so that's no longer between them? Oh, now we're getting real. <laughs> now we're getting real. Are you willing to write that check? If there's a mess between two people, something that's broken down, a big stinking mess that neither one of them want to clean up, are you willing to get dirty and clean that up so that is moved out of the way so that's no longer between them? Are you willing to clean up a mess you didn't make for the sake of two people being reconciled to each other? Is there someone in your life who needs a character reference, someone to stand up for them, to vouch for them when they've justifiably lost credibility and fallen out of favor? And are you willing to come between two people and put your reputation on the line for that person to take responsibility for whatever they do, to say, you know what? I am behind this person. If they mess up, I'll clean it up. <laughs> now it's getting real, like I said. Beloved, do we commit our resources for reconciliation as a loan or as an investment? And as you think about that one, think about this. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad Jesus gave us his life on the cross not as a loan but as an investment? How does the gospel change if Jesus all of a sudden says, okay, I'm back. Pay up. What in the world are we going to have to offer to pay back Jesus giving his life for us? What could we possibly give in return? Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't give his life as a loan, but rather as an investment in us? Do we have, do we, do we offer what we have anticipating and communicating a positive outcome? Do we give what we have anticipating a positive outcome? Or do we contribute what we have begrudgingly, expressing our reservation and our doubts? Yeah, I'm throwing this money away. Yeah, here I am cleaning up another mess again. I'll probably be doing it again. How would everything change? Think about it. How would everything change if Jesus wasn't willing to put his life on the line for us? 
What kind of gospel would we have if Christ approached the work of reconciliation that he came to do without telling us we were worth it? Without telling us we could be saved? Without telling us we can be changed? Can you imagine that gospel? Jesus goes to the cross and says, all right, Father, whatever. It ain't gonna make any difference. They're all a bunch of losers. You might as well flood the planet again. This ain't gonna change nothing. Okay, I'll do it. But no, Jesus goes to the cross and on the cross he tells us we're worth it. We can be saved. We can be changed. We have a God in Christ who models for us this ministry of reconciliation. Thankfully, Jesus entered into human flesh to encourage us, to build us up, to show us what we were created to be as human beings and what we can be through him. Thankfully, Jesus spoke the truth. He repeatedly opened our eyes to how our Father is on the move, how his kingdom is breaking into this earth, changing things, changing us, and he spoke that truth in love. He set aside his rights, his power over us, and emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and he gave us the choice to believe and follow him. Thankfully, Jesus invested his very life into our restoration. At just the right time, the scriptures say, Jesus Christ willingly offered himself as a payment for the sins of the world. Jesus wrote that check. And he did so willingly in faith and trust that we were worth dying for, that we will rise from the dead with him. Beloved, just as Jesus enters into our world and lives to reconcile us to himself, we who follow him have to share in this ministry of reconciliation. So I ask you this morning, I beg you this morning, let's follow Paul in following Christ's example and being the ambassadors that we're called to be. This word, as I said, couldn't come at a more timely moment we live in our own nation where we are more and more divided and it breaks my heart. We live in a world where we are more and more apart from each other than together. And some of us want to say, well, that's just how it's got to be. And that's not the gospel I read. We have been empowered by the Spirit to enter into the broken lives of others. That's what this is all about. We have been empowered to enter into the broken lives of others as ourselves, broken people in the process of restoration. We have been called to enter in and build up houses that are broken and divided against each other. We have been called to enter in and create new perceptions of what is possible by speaking the truth of the gospel in love. The arguments are tired. The sides are declared. People aren't budging. We don't need to keep rehashing that as ministers of reconciliation. We have to start talking about the gospel. We need to start talking about what's possible beyond what we can see, what's possible beyond the limits of our arguments, what's possible beyond the limits of our own wisdom and knowledge, a God who is beyond our thoughts and our ways. We need to point and we need to be looking in order to see it to how God is in and through Christ bringing back together already what is separated, what is lost or forsaken. We need to enter into the very lives of others and invest ourselves, laying it all on the line in hope and trust that what is broken can be repaired, that what is damaged can be healed, that what is torn apart can be put back together. My God, in a nation where we are increasingly divided, in a world where the ways of violence Rather than peace continue to reign, the ministry of reconciliation desperately needs to be practiced. 
And you can begin, we can begin practicing it in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in this church. But that's only if we believe. It's only if we trust that Jesus came to break down the barriers that come between us. That Jesus came to break down the barriers that come between us, whether they're barriers of race, gender, social status, political party, personal preference. As children of God, if that's who we truly see ourselves as, children of God, together we've got to commit. We've got to commit to learn how to be imitators of our Father. By the power of the Spirit and the witness of Paul, let us become ambassadors for Christ, mediators of the faith, the hope, and love of the gospel. And together, by the grace of God, may we glean how to change the growing tide of resentment and retaliation in our communities, in our nation, and in our world. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. And in talking about it, praying about it, let's let God foster the transformation of our most hopeless relationships into the deep and loving bonds of one family created in the image of God. That's how our Father sees us. That's what Jesus died for. Amen.